Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. It is the first episode for the year. I'm Dr. Shane. Welcome back, listeners, to 2021. We have a massive year of science coming ahead for you. And we are going to start off with a bit of a bang this year with some great guests. We're going to be talking a little bit later about vaccinations and all the details that you'll ever need about that, at least for the next week anyway, until things uh, change, as they often do in this space. But online with me, I've also got Dr. Crystal. Good morning and welcome back. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's nice to be chatting about science on a Sunday. I know it's weird. We take this, normally we take an eight week break. Uh, This year we've only taken a four week break because there was just too much going on. I couldn't handle the long break. So much happening at the moment. So it's great to be back on the air. Yeah. And also we have one of our sort of new participants in Einstein and Gogo. She was on the 20 and 20 uh, show last year, late last year. She's coming in all the way from Texas. Gracie Finko is uh, joining us now from Texas. She has a bachelor's degree in biology, uh, her clinical master's degree in orthotics and prosthetics, and is doing PhD work in uh, rehab of amputees. Good morning, Gracie. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. And you're coming all the way from Texas. Yes, that's correct. I love Dallas, that. Texas. Yeah, Dallas, mm-hmm. Texas. Now, we, we're cut off from America here in Australia, so I'm figuring your environment is somewhere between an episode of 30 Rock and Shit's Creek. Do tell. I'm sorry, I missed about half of that. Uh, I was just saying, I think uh, our, our video dropped off for a second there, but your environment there is somewhere between uh, 30 Rock and Shit's Creek. Is that about right in Texas? Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> now, we're going to talk a little bit with you later about muscles and, and all the, the, the things that we don't know about muscles. But um, for the moment, of course, we start our show with some news. So if you haven't listened to the show before, folks, uh, that's where it begins. Dr. Crystal, you've been uh, trawling through so many different things. I guess it was hard to pick over the last couple of months. What's caught your eye this week? Well, actually, Dr. Shane, um, over the summer break, I was really sad to see that um, the Melbourne Museum will be closing one of its most popular exhibitions. Mm. Melbourne Museum announced that, sadly, the wild, amazing animal section, which is more commonly known as the Dead Zoo, the taxonomy room, that that space where they have um, all the uh, stuffed specimens, um, after 11 years, will actually be closing. It was devastating news for many of us who have enjoyed that wonderful exhibition um, over the last 11 years. Um, uh, Have you been there, Dr. Shane? Have you taken the kids? I love it. Look, there's a few moments where there's a couple of the animals where I feel like they're watching me, um, which I guess is part of taxonomy. That's how they're made. But it's incredible just to see the variety of different types of animals on display in a way that you would never otherwise be able to see them. So when I I actually saw you tweeting about this um, when it was announced and there was a bit of sadness because, you know, the kids love it. Yeah, I mean, 750 preserved specimens, including some animals that are now extinct. They have a taxidermied thylacine, so Mm. the the 
Tasmanian tiger, which we will not be able to see anywhere else. But I guess um, there's some really good reasons why they've had to close it. This is in no way a criticism of Melbourne Museum because it's incredibly hard to preserve those specimens in that open air environment because mm. they were just right there. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is they're quite subject to infestation by beetles and moths and, and they're very fragile. Like, you mm. know, some of those specimens are literally hundreds of years old. So, uh, so it's with the great and heavy heart that we see that exhibition closing However, I am super excited about what's coming next in that space. Oh, yeah? Melbourne Museum has acquired a Triceratops skeleton. Oh, it yes. It's going to be amazing. And it's a full one, isn't it? Like, or as yes. close to full as you can get. As close to full as possible. It is the most complete um, and well-preserved uh, example of a triceratops skeleton. It's all from one individual animal, which is quite rare. What you don't know when you go to museums is when you're looking at those um, reconstructed dinosaurs, some of those bits have been kind of taken from different skeletons, yep. but this is all one animal. Um, it has a complete skull, a complete spine, and it's going to be um, on display later this year. So whilst I was super sad to see the taxonomy exhibition going, I understand why, and I'm super excited as a triceratops and dinosaur fan to know that that's that's coming this year. So something to look out for in 2021. Yeah, look, I think that's absolutely fantastic. I mean, I remember years ago campaigning on this show for Melbourne Museum to have a larger um, geology display because at the time when the new museum first opened, they had what was essentially the equivalent of one sort of storefront, one shop front, you know, of, of rocks. And now they've got this absolutely magnificent geology display, which I love. I mean, some of my kids kind of rush through it a bit fast and I want to look at every single one of the thousands of rocks that they have in there because they're just amazing. But, um, but yeah, rocks, oh, and, rocks and dinosaurs for me, you know, bring it on. Fantastic. Someone, someone with a name like Crystal, I have enjoyed mineral <laughs> displays from a very early age. So don't get me wrong, I'm a big fan of the rocks. So yeah. Oh, is that where your name come from? I thought it was something from the 60s. Um, your parents spending – anyway, uh, we, we, we don't digress. Um, now, I wanted to mention something that I think is really important, and I'm sure everyone's aware of this, but something absolutely magnificent has entered the Oval Office of the White House. Did you hear about this over the last couple of weeks, Crystal? Really? Is there anything happening in the White House I should be aware of? Yes. So now here's where it's very important. NASA have confirmed that there is now a moon rock in the Oval Office. This has been put in there at the request of the Biden administration. I know oh. You thought I was going to say something else, but no, um, this is a, a, an amazing piece of rock that was brought back um, during the last Apollo mission. This is where there's a connection to our show because it was brought back by Harrison Schmidt and Gene Cernan. And, of course, we've interviewed Gene Cernan before, yes. long before he passed on this very show. And one of the rocks that they brought back is now uh, in, in the White House, in the Oval Office, which I think is one of the most magnificent representations of the fact that science has re-entered that place um, that you could find. Oh my gosh! Talk about putting science at the centre of the, the of the new administration. That is wonderful and very welcome news. Yeah. So anyway, it's um it, it's like many of the moon rocks. It has a lot of history and and it's only you know it's only three point nine billion years old. Um. So <laughs> and it's if you can find the picture of it on the web, uh, folks, it's worth having a look at because one side is is very unusual in that it's um, been pitted by all these sort of micrometeorites, small pieces of dust that have hit it while it was on the moon's surface. 
and that's been preserved over a long time. The other side is is different, and that's because um, researchers at NASA, you know, carved a piece off for analysis. So it's got two very different sides to it. Um, but it's it's in there. It's in this little case. You can you can find it. In fact, if you have a look on the NASA website, they've got some nice pictures of it. It's really quite cool. But I thought that was amazing that that was already in the White House just a you know a few days later, which is which is great. Gracie, you had uh, something you found very interesting for us as well. Yes, not quite as interesting as Moon Rocks, but I did pick this new segment for anybody that has ever asked themselves, what is the actual difference between bread, cake, and cookies? <laughs> because, you know, sometimes it seems like it's kind of a matter of opinion, right? Um, mm. And it's it seems like it'd be something that would be really difficult to actually objectively measure. Um, but engineers at Google actually built machine learning algorithms to do this. So they took over 700 recipes online for bread, cake, and cookies, and they looked at a few main ingredients that were common to all three of them. So things like the amount of flour or egg or sugar, and the algorithm actually predicted um, basically the percentage of bread, the percentage of cake, and the percentage of cookie each kind of recipe would be. Um, and something I found really funny about the story was uh, they actually had to reclassify some things like a banana bread, zucchini bread, um, based on something that Paul Hollywood said, um, who's from the Great British Baking Show. Um, <laughs> right. And he actually said one time that, you know, banana bread, zucchini bread, those kind of treats are more like cakes than breads. And so they actually <laughs> used that to help develop the algorithm, which I thought was pretty funny. Right. Um, and then they also used hybrids uh, of cakes and cookies and breads and cookies to make two new recipes that they have online on their website uh, for anybody else to try. Wow. It, it's uh, I want to say it's such a great use of artificial intelligence <laughs> it's one of those things where these settling some of these age-old questions were, were there differences in the way it worked this out for you know different cultures as well i mean what you call a cookie gracie and what i call a cookie might not be exactly the same thing i use the word biscuit a lot right definitely yeah that's definitely something to consider from my understanding they looked at american recipes but i'm not completely positive if they included uh that in their algorithm making you know we, and i think a lot of people kind of tend to assume that um machine learning algorithms are without bias but that's definitely not true yeah um even as as uh, we mentioned earlier with the paul hollywood saying that banana bread's actually more of a cake you know you can kind of program the algorithm um based on your own opinion so yeah, I think we have to watch out for that in all um, the use of AI, that uh, there is there is a programmer or programmers somewhere at some point, and that means that the bias is automatically going to be in there whether we like it or not. But this question right. has come up a number of times in policy settings around taxation, like, you know, mm. where, where, where goods and services taxes apply to cakes but not to biscuits or apply to bread but not to um, cookies. So, like, you know, or, or vice versa. So, it, it's you know, it's, it's been a raging debate in many countries as to, well, is this a cake or is it a biscuit? Because it'll fall in a different tax category. So, it's fascinating that there's now some kind of uh, tool to be able to point to for this very question. Yeah, that's no, good stuff. I, I'm getting all sorts of texts at the moment about biscuits being superior uh gracie I, i'm sure i'm sure we could we could talk about this for a while thanks for that news um crystal was there anything else you wanted to mention um before we end our news segment oh i just had a quick update for fans of wolves um i don't know if you saw this story dr shane but it was a, a, a genomic analysis of the now extinct dire wolf so dire wolves have always been thought to be related to today's gray wolf based on their their bones. If you look at the bone structure of a dire wolf bone skeleton versus the structure of a wolf skeleton, people have sort of said, oh, yeah, they must be related. However, 
some genomic analysis that was done at the Australian Centre for Ancient DNA has actually revealed that direwolves ain't wolves. Mm. They're actually probably not even part of the, the same genus. They're actually probably an independent um, arm of the genetic tree um, who've kind of evolved actually quite separately with no interbreeding um, with our modern-day wolves at all. So, sadly, dire wolf, not a wolf. Oh, we always find these things out and we have to rewrite things. Remember when it happened to the Brontosaurus and the Apatosaurus and then they rewrote it and then we had to go back? So, hopefully this one will well, stick. I think the amazing thing here was that the researchers were actually able to isolate and sequence these DNA from these sub-fossilised um, species mm. that were, you know, 13,000 to 50,000 years old and actually be, being able to sequence DNA that old to be able to answer this question. But, yeah, it's going to lead to a complete rewriting of the wolf genetic family. Yeah, no, very interesting stuff. Now, the final thing I wanted to mention is over the next coming weeks, I will apologise already for the fact that I'm going to be talking a lot about the Perseverance rover and its intended landing on Mars on February 18. It is not far away. And it's pretty exciting because one of the things, if you haven't heard about this rover, that you need to know is that it was specifically designed to look for life. So previous rovers haven't really been designed to do that um, as their primary goal, whereas this one has. And one of the things that uh, that this has that the previous rover didn't is much more sophisticated landing capabilities. So it will be able to land in what is essentially um, an area that's like a river delta. So this is an area that used to um, have a river running into a sort of larger area and has that sort of river delta pattern, you know, that fan-like pattern um, from a long, long time ago when there was flowing water on Mars. Or, you know, And the idea is that that would be an ideal location to look for, for traces of, of past life but in order to land in that area which is rocky has all sorts of crevices and outcrops it needs to be far more sophisticated in its landing capabilities than the previous rover and so perseverance has this it's pretty exciting and also has other instruments on board that will help it determine whether or not it's looking at organic molecules and so forth so um good stuff it's only a few weeks away um february the countdown 18. is on yeah less than a month so for those of us who are a bit you know crazy about this stuff like me um and i'm sure when we get a new back on the show in a few weeks she'll be going nuts about it as well um pretty exciting if this is a successful landing so uh gracie you, you you'll have a better um view of this i suspect from from texas um because you know that's where all this stuff's originating yes i'm looking forward to it we have gracie from texas on the line she's going to be telling us all about muscles gracie over to you Yes, so today I'm going to be talking about basically everything that you never learned about your muscles in school. Um, and there are three types of muscles, and this you've probably learned before. So there's actually one type that's cardiac, which is in your heart, uh, smooth muscle, which is in your intestines, and then skeletal muscle, which is kind of what we think of of our arms and legs. And skeletal muscle is what I'm going to be talking about today. So a lot of people tend to think of your body as a machine, and your muscles are pulling on your bones to allow you to move. Um, and basically what's happening is an electrical signal is being sent from your brain to the muscle, um, and your muscle is mostly made of proteins. And most people think that we all have the exact same number of muscles in our body, but this actually is not true. So about 12 to 16% of people actually don't have what's called their palmaris longus muscle, which is a muscle in your forearm. And you can actually check to see if you have one in one or both of your arms by uh, maybe if you're driving and listening, don't do this. But um, if you take your thumb and your pinky and you put them together, and then you kind of 
uh, flex and extend your wrist towards you and away from you, you should see um, a pretty thin muscle that kind of pops up in the middle of your forearm. Um, and that indicates that you have one. And about 12 to 16% of people actually don't have one in either uh, one of their arms or in both of their arms. Um, and previously, it was thought that your palmaris longus muscle, that this muscle actually helps with your grip strength. Um, but research has actually shown that this is not actually true. Um, so they're kind of having to refigure out, you know, what does this muscle actually do? And it's used in a lot of tendon transfer for surgeries hmm i've i've got it gracie i've got the muscle <laughs> awesome yeah i have them in both of my arms too so <laughs> i think crystal's still on the uh, line chris crystal have you got it i'm i'm not sure i do <laughs> <laughs> you may not <laughs> you're in the 12 percent oh yeah. my gosh yeah it's your rarity <laughs> So if I asked both of you, um, what do you think is the strongest muscle in your body by weight? What would you tell me? By weight? Ooh, interesting. By weight. Not just the biggest muscle, the strongest one by weight. Oh, because your glutes are probably the biggest. But yes, by, that's by, correct. By power to ratio, maybe mm. it's a smaller muscle that does a lot of work. Like, is it is it in your tongue or in your face? I would have thought in your eye, yeah. maybe the, the muscles in your eye or I don't know. That's a tough one, Gracie. Yeah, you guys are both on the right track. So it's actually a muscle in your face. It's called the masseter, and it's in your jaw. Oh, the chewing. Um, yes, correct. And it helps you chew. Um, and actually what I found uh, kind of funny about this topic is that, you know, people tend to say the phrase bite down. Like we tend to think of ourselves as biting down on something when mm. we're chewing. Um, and actually your jaw, uh, the top portion of your skull actually doesn't move. It's just the bottom portion of your mouth that actually moves. So technically we're biting up all the mm. time. Um, and oh, it's pretty yeah. much impossible to actually bite down. <laughs> so, oh, <right. laughs> yeah, no, now you mention it, that's, I'm like opening my and closing my mouth. It's a great thing for radio, but yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah. You can kind of test it on yourself too. Um, and then, so we've talked about kind of muscles in our arms and then muscles that we chew with. Um, and most people tend to think of kind of consciously moving these skeletal muscles. But there are actually several skeletal muscles that we move unconsciously, and we've probably all heard of reflexes. So like the example of if you accidentally touch a hot stove, you automatically pull away without thinking about mm. it, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there are others that we probably haven't heard of. So one is called the auditory reflex, and this actually involves your weakest skeletal muscle in your body. It's called the stapedius, and it's in your middle ear, and it contracts whenever you hear a very loud sound, and it contracts in order to mute that sound and protect your ear, um, and it also contracts when we speak. Um, and so that's actually part of the reason why you sound different when you're talking than when you hear a recording of yourself. Oh my God. Uh, so, I have been wondering yes. about that for like decades, Gracie. <laughs> for yes. decades. Thank um, you. Yes. Yeah. So part of it is actually the the bone conduction in your skull actually amplifies lower frequencies, which wow. is why you think to yourself, wow, I sound so much deeper. My voice sounds so much deeper whenever I'm talking than whenever I listen to a recording. I sound, you know, kind of more high pitched and more, uh, a lot of people think they sound more annoying um, for that reason. <laughs> and that's actually part of the reason because your stupidius is contracting and muting that sound. Wow. I always thought uh, I had a deep voice. You're oh. telling me it's just the way I hear it myself. Oh. Yep. Just the way you hear it yourself. How disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually sound like, you know, Elsa from Frozen. Is that what you're telling me? Exactly. Yeah, yep. great. <laughs> 
Yeah, and another one, another reflex um, is actually called a facial mimicry reflex. So you also have skeletal muscles in your face. Um, and a lot of uh, human emotions are actually pretty universal across cultures. So things like happiness or disgust or anger. Um, and actually, whenever we see other people make these facial expressions, we, um, for a few milliseconds, actually imitate and we mimic mm. their facial expressions. And we do it very unconsciously. Um, Wow. And then we also have reflexes that control our entire posture. So there are two things um, that control our posture mainly. And there's one that's called anticipatory postural control. And that's basically exactly what it sounds like. It's basically um, changing your posture in anticipation of something that's coming next. So if you imagine yourself, you're standing somewhere and you want to pick up a heavy box off of a table. Um, your calf muscles and your hamstring muscles and your butt muscles are already contracting milliseconds before you even pick up the box. Mm. And that's uh, in order to prevent you from falling over once you've picked it up. So your muscles are already doing that before you even pick up the box, which is pretty amazing to anticipate that. Mm. Oh, yeah. And then have you ever like had that thing where you picked up a box and it's actually empty and then your muscles feel like you're, you're just like lifting it up way too quickly because you've, you've anticipated it being heavy? Yes, exactly. I feel like that's probably one of the most like disorienting human universal yeah. experiences. And that's actually controlled by the, a part of your brain called the cerebellum. And it's constantly um, basically receiving that sensory input and automatically adjusting your muscle function in order to accommodate for that. Yeah, that's why in TV shows, when they walk around with empty coffee cups, we can all determine that they're doing it right. We can all, always tell that's not right. Something looks wrong. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's very hard to fake. Yeah, yes. it's hard to fake. And then another, yes, exactly. Um, and another uh, thing about postural control is we also have reactive postural control. So this is adjusting our posture um, after something has already happened. So things like if you accidentally trip or stumble and uh, you kind of move your leg in a way that prevents you from falling. So you have this muscle coordination. And a lot of people tend to think that um, you'll hear people say, you know, well, I'm just not coordinated. Um, and muscle coordination is actually something that's learned and can actually be increased, um, particularly by exercising uh, and balancing with your eyes closed. And then also doing different sorts of uh, what are called plyometric exercises. So like things where you're jumping or doing explosive movements. So like jumping rope, jump squats and lunges. Um, and then also, if you ask uh, pretty much any exercise physiologist, how can I actually make my muscles grow? Um, there's two main ways that your muscles actually grow. So one is called hypertrophy, which is basically the existing muscle fibers get bigger. And then the other one is called hyperplasia, which is you're actually increasing the number of those muscle fibers. Mm, right. mm. And so um, a lot of, uh, you know, physiologists or nutritionists, you'll hear them say you have to exercise, but you also have to pay attention to your diet and eat more protein if you want to grow muscle. And the reason for this is exercise is actually only really addressing the first one, hypertrophy, which is uh, making your muscle fibers bigger. And then your diet is actually the one that's increasing the number of muscle fibers. So there's very little overlap lap there um, yep. and so those are the two main ways and things that you need to pay attention to if that's something you're trying to do well gracie i tell you i've learned more about muscles in the last eight minutes or so than i think i have in the last 30 years so <laughs> thank you so much we're going to look forward to uh you teaching us various things over the coming months which i think is going to be a lot of fun thanks so much for chatting to us today about this and um and we hope that things settle down somewhat now for you in the u.s as well and that the numbers start coming down but you stay safe and we'll chat to you again soon yeah, thanks for having me, Shane. It was a lot of fun. That was great. Um, folks, and Dr. Crystal, good to see you again after a few months. 
Always, always a pleasure talking science with you, Dr. Shane. Thanks, Dr. Crystal. Buddy, you're listening to Einstein to go go on three triple R. It is a science show, and we couldn't be uh, back on air without talking about vaccinations. I think with all that's going on in the world, and and also here in Melbourne. So on the line with me now, I have two guests that uh, I've had a lot to do with over the last month, as we wrote an article in the conversation about this very issue. Associate Professor Holly Seal is from the School of Population Health at the University of New South Wales. Good morning, Holly. Morning, Shane. Great to talk to you. And we have Dr. Kylie Quinn, who's a Vice-Chancellor's Research Fellow in the School of Health and Biomedical Sciences at RMIT University. And Kylie's also an adjunct fellow in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at Monash Uni. Welcome, Kylie. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Now, I think you've been on the show before, Kylie, haven't you? A while back. Yeah, yeah, yeah I have. It's been yeah. a little while. It's been a little while. Now, what I want to do first is because we've got a bit of time, I, I want I want to talk about your individual areas of research first, and then we can get into this broader vaccination discussion, which I think is really important. But um, Holly, I want to start with you because you do some work that I, I suppose a lot of people aren't really aware or they're going to become really aware of this soon if they're not aware of it already. But you're a social scientist, so you work very much with the things that affect our uptake or or otherwise of immunization. So, I mean, this is not specific to COVID. You know, this is something that um, my understanding is from a a tweet yesterday from Hunt where above 94, 95% immunization in many areas. So give us a bit of an oversight of what what you do and what, what you're sort of looking at. That's it. You know, that really is a a nice nutshell of what I do is, you know, I'm at the other end of the spectrum, you know, moving beyond the development phase and the testing phase. I'm really looking at how do we support members of the community, our healthcare workers, those who work in different industries and so forth, to really look at how do we support them to accept um, and also receive the vaccine. And and that's, you know, kind of the, the social science that I'm really interested in. What are those barriers? What are those facilitators that really help people to, to get that shot into their arm? And and that may be their attitudes, it may be their behaviours, it may be their uh, social norms, but it also can be some of the system issues. Uh, it can be just access to, to vaccines. And, you know, what you were just saying before about coverage being at 94%, of course, that's... That is uh, focused on our childhood immunisation programs, which we've been doing really well here in Australia for for many, many years. What I'm very much interested in, you know, pre-COVID and, and, um, you know, my work ongoing is about life course immunisation. So what we know is that, you know, it's not just kids who get recommended to have vaccines, that across the age, whether you're a pregnant lady, whether you're um, a person with a chronic health condition or whether you are um, in the older age populations, we are all recommended to have different vaccines. And so what we know, of course, is that we don't do so well in some of those other vaccine coverage um, areas. And, you know, we could be as low as 30 to 40 percent when it comes to vaccinating, um, you know, people who have chronic health conditions who are under the age of 65. Um, and that, you know, could maybe be a little bit higher when we're talking about older adults. And so there's still a lot more work that needs to be done mm. there. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, one of the things that I find interesting, of course, is that our interaction with the healthcare system in many regards is often about repair, you know, 
and that term repair care comes in where I, I go and interact with my health professionals generally, unless it's like a, a you know, a dermatologist or a dentist, I, I tend to go for repair. Whereas when we talk about vaccinations, we're very much talking about prevention. And that, I mean, how do you sort of factor in that difference in psychology and the way in which people normally interact with the healthcare system? Yeah, that's it. For many people, they don't realise they are recommended to have a vaccine. Um, and so when we get into our GP practice, we're going in for another reason. That conversation may just not happen. Mm. You know, people say, oh, but there's always posters on the walls. But, yeah. you know, do we see it? We've got our head down in yeah. our phone. And, you know, the challenge also is that many of those posters are only in English. Yeah. Um, and so for, you know, a proportion of our population, you know, those messages aren't getting through. And, and so it's how do we nudge people? How do we remind them? How do we get those conversations going? Um, and it may be between colleagues, it may be between different health workers um, that we actually need to move beyond to try and ensure that, you know, conversations yeah. happen. Yeah. I think too, when you mention things like the posters, most organizations breach some of the most basic rules of good communication. Mm -hmm. And that is I go into those those facilities and there are 25 posters on the room. And as a result, I see none of them. Whereas if mm -hmm. there were one or two, and you know, you might change those every month to make sure that the whole 25 is covered in the space of you know a year or something. But if there's one or two, I will see them. Whereas if mm -hmm. there are 25, I will see none of them. And in many of these circumstances, Circumstances. I'm not sure what your impressions are of that, Holly, but we, we seem to miss that basic sort of axiom of good communication, not to give too much in one go. Yeah, that's it. And look, you know, definitely been a bugbear of mine in the past talking about the visual cues that we use. Um, you know, the language is one thing, you know, we, we all tend to overwhelm the materials that we use to advertise, but it's also the visual cues. So, you know, you're looking at a poster trying to promote vaccination. You know, does the person who's on that poster talk to you? You know, do they look like you? Do they, mm. you know, are they someone that you would say, oh, look, you know, that that's maybe a message that's directed at me and I do a lot of work looking at how do we promote hospital-based um, immunization so trying to get our healthcare workers to accept the vaccine and you know I'm forever looking at posters in hospital walls that look like um, healthcare workers that have stepped straight out of your latest medical drama you know on yep. television or Hollywood drama you know <laughs> that the, the way that they look and the, the kind of the actions that they're doing you know it is really really bad and you know I, I, I'm often tweeting out and I've got colleagues around the world that you know we're always pulling up posters where you you see um, somebody pretending to give a vaccine, but they're either looking like they're instead drawing blood or they, you know, they've got really bad practice of, of how they're giving the vaccine and it's a little bit scary. And, and that's a problem because yeah. does that put people off? You know, if you are not used to receiving a vaccine or it's been a while since you've received a vaccine, to see a, you know, to see a kind of a, a, a poster with that kind of picture on it, you'd be thinking, well, hang on, I don't think I want to rush down to my local GP and, and get that. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's certainly so much of our our interaction with the healthcare system in that regard depends on our perception. And one of the things that I did after I had my COVID test was I relayed the way the information was given to me by the person who did the test because many people heard, you know, this is a really uncomfortable test and so forth. And, mm -hmm. and the interesting thing is when, when it was given to me, the person said, this will be uncomfortable for a very short period of time. Yeah. And that was really important for me to hear because most of us can handle something a little uncomfortable for, you know, three or four seconds. And that's all it was. And did I like it? No. 
No. Would I do it again if I needed to? Absolutely. Would, you know, was it something that I thought was preventative in terms of people getting it? Well, if they get the wrong message about it and they only mm-hmm. hear the first part of that sentence, it will be uncomfortable without the for mm-hmm. three or four seconds, then they'll, they'll veer away from it. And that's problematic. Kylie, um, you're, you're at the other end of the spectrum where, you, you know, you're in the sort of lab with the actual uh, the materials we're talking about, uh, you're, you're focusing on how our sort of ageing, how ageing can limit the way in which these things work. I mean, I hadn't thought about this before, but I'm guessing as our immune system drops off with age in its capability, so too does our ability to utilise certain vaccinations or they become less effective. How does, how does that play out? Yeah, so um, look, there's a, there's a lot of different ways it can play out. So I, I guess early on in my career, I was really focused on vaccine mechanism. Mm. Um, so understanding what the different components that we put in a vaccine, how they're interacting with our immune system, and exactly how they're eliciting an immune response. And we do a, we did a lot of that work. I was sort of focused on TB vaccines, HIV vaccines, and using these adenoviral systems and um but a lot of that work's done in young people or, or young models, right? Um, and so I've been in Australia for about seven years now. And since during that time, I've been focusing on the ageing immune system. And everything's pretty similar, but just a little bit different. And mm. so if we're designing effective immune-based therapies like vaccines, uh, we need to really think about how that physiology changes with with age, how our aged immune system interacts with with vaccines, not necessarily even in a in a less effective way all the time. It can be just a different way. So we yep. need to tweak those vaccines so they're more tailored for older individuals. Yep. And we see good examples of those out there. There's a um, age specific flu vaccine that we we give out. There's a now a, a, a really great shingles vaccine which is coming onto the market. And so we're starting to see that we can design more effective vaccines specifically for older people yeah look it's fascinating one of the things i've you know stop me here if i'm way off track but i get excited about this stuff is the way in which as we get older we're more likely to end up with cancers and mm-hmm. i've always thought of that as you know our immune system's ability to clear what is happening all the time you know we have little errors in our body all the time but when we're younger our immune system's so good at dealing with that and then as we get older, that that tends to drop off. And and it's yeah. interesting when one of our our real, uh, you know, hopes is that immunotherapies will be the great you know breakthrough for cancer treatment. And and that's already starting, which is fantastic. But I, I suppose it must, like with vaccines, it must play play out in a way that's consistent with what age the person is when they're utilising those vaccines. Yep, that's that's exactly what my my group focuses on at RMIT. So we've got these two arms. We're really interested in understanding how how vaccine efficacy changes with increasing age, and understanding the mechanisms that underlie that, how we can manipulate those mechanisms and make better vaccines. But the other big focus that we have is are those immune based therapies. So there are some cancer therapies where we take the patient's own immune cells into the lab. We can stimulate them into the lab in the lab and introduce them uh, or we can genetically modify them actually with a, a cancer seeking receptor and then deliver them back to the patient. And that's called CAR T cell therapy. Um, and the efficacy of that, yeah, it drops off a little bit as we get older because that particular cell type that we're really interested in is called a, a CD8 T cell or a killer T cell because it's really good at killing cancer cells. Um, they happen to be one of the cell types that just doesn't function quite as effectively as we get older. So thinking about 
innovative ways to re-engage those selves, to re, re um, I guess, reincorporate them into an immune response, even as you get older, is, is part of the whole aim of ageing in a healthy, more healthy way. Mm. Fascinating stuff. Triple R. Back, folks, you're listening to Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane, and I'm speaking with Associate Professor Holly Seal from the University of New South Wales and Dr. Kylie Quinn from RMIT University. We're talking about vaccinations. Now, uh, I think where I wanted to start with this uh, team, team, uh, team vaccine, we'll call you for today. Um, <laughs> Kylie, I might start with you. Can you just give us a bit of a rundown quickly of when we get a vaccination, like the ones we're talking about, these Pfizer vaccines, the AstraZeneca or, you know, the Ox... I like to refer to it as the Oxford vaccine. Uh, a little sure. bit, you know, Ox- everyone loves that. Uh, you know, pity there isn't a Harvard vaccine. Anyway, um, oh, you know, there is. Oh, there uh, is. There is. Oh, whoops. Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, Harvard. I apologise. Uh, but um, when we when we hear about these things, I mean, what do these things do in our body when we actually get them? So when someone gives me this vaccination, what what happens? Sure. Um, so a vaccine is trying to mimic basically the first time that we see a viral infection. It's trying to mimic that infection. And what it's trying to do is introduce our immune system, the cells of our immune system, to a particular target on the surface of the virus. Uh, so usually during a viral infection, what happens is that virus gets into our cells. It will target a certain receptor to get into the cells. Um, once it's inside the cells, it will start to replicate itself. So it makes lots and lots of proteins them, the, assemble themselves into the virus. And, um, and those proteins are really distinctive. They're a really good way of recognising that particular virus. Um, and so the cells of our immune system start to see those proteins and recognise them as targets that they want to target. So there's a couple of cells of our immune system. One's called a, a B cell. It makes this wonderful protein called an antibody, which folks may have heard of, which goes off and floats around our body. Um, antibodies can bind to the surface of that virus and bind to that target on the virus and gum it up so it can't get into our cells anymore. Um, And then there's another type of cell called a T cell, which uh, is really good at recognising viral cells and and killing them. So that process happens. The cells get introduced to the viral target, but it takes time. And in the meantime, the virus is still replicating. Um, and it can start, if it builds up enough numbers and it can start to spread throughout our body, it can start to cause disease and make us sick. Um, but the, the bonus, if we can survive that, then, then we have what's called immunity. And immunity is basically that those T cells and those B cells remember the target. So the next time you see it, the response is much greater, it's much quicker, and it can stop the viral infection before it starts to cause any issues. So what we're trying to do with a vaccine is we're, we're trying to take that target and introduce the cells of our immune system to that target so that they're ready to go. They remember it when we see the real infection and we don't have to risk um, getting sick with disease, mm. uh, that particular disease. Now, now with these vaccines, uh, my understanding is some of them will, like when we get some of these vaccines, it'll stop me actually carrying it and passing it on. Whereas the new vaccines, and we have to, you know, stress that these are brand new. They're, they're, there's many in development. We'll probably see a thousand of them in the next three years. Um, these these ones we're talking about now won't prevent me from passing the disease on this or passing the virus on necessarily. Is that correct? Yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of discussion around that at the moment, um, but we don't know yet. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's actually at a point that um, we don't know what impact 
the these particular vaccines will have on what you're talking about is what we call transmission. So transmitting the virus from one individual to the next individual. Uh, it's really hard to get that information before you have vaccines rolled out in a large number of people in a population where you have the virus circulating. So we're starting to try and get a handle on these things um, in, in places like Israel, where there's, they're starting to get quite high levels of vaccine coverage. And we might start to see some hints about whether the, the vaccine is impacting on transmission. Um, but the, the challenge with a vaccine is that um, these particular vaccines are fantastic at preventing disease. So they're, they're fantastic at preventing you from getting sick with disease. We don't have great information yet about whether they prevent you from getting infected at all. So you could mm. get infected, but you won't, it won't develop disease. Um, and the next question is, if you get infected, um, you still might not make enough virus to infect an, another person effectively. And that's that transmission step, right? So we still don't have good information about that. So it's... And it's it's a challenge of these these trials. We're still collecting that information, and and that, you know, the situation is evolving there. And our vaccine strategies will probably yeah. adapt as we get that information. Yeah. Now, Holly, um, I think that's what you know we, we were discussing during the break. This this comparison between effectiveness and efficacy and all these words that are now being you know they're being used in the media all the time and to be fair 95 percent of the population doesn't know what the hell the difference is between them or what they even mean in themselves and what they hear is this vaccine's 95 percent and this vaccine's 65 percent and you know if i said to you you know this this airbag is 95 percent effective and it'll go off and this one's you know you're going to want the 95 but Talk us through that because I think there's some there's confusion there as to the difference between these numbers and these words and what they mean. Yeah, look, that's important. And and for some people, they will be questioning, like, you know, the, the words sound similar, you know, mm. why can't we use them interchangeably? And, and, you know, we saw that earlier in the pandemic too. We saw the use of isolation and quarantine actually start to be used for the same thing, whereas actually they are quite unique terms that mean something quite different. And um, and so, you know, for someone who teaches infectious diseases, you know, I'm forever in my class trying to explain the difference between isolation and quarantine. But, you know, we had to let it go because for the kind of the population, we started to talk about self-isolation. And that was then the, the, the common term used. But moving into these trials, it, it is important we understand the differences between these terms because when we use efficacy now, it's really because of the way that the data is currently being um, uh, made available. It's still coming from the clinical trials. And so efficacy re relates to a term used, you know, during a clinical trial to look at the um, impact of the um, vaccine or the product on the um, outcome of interest. And so that could be, as Kylie was saying, about reduction in serious illness or, or reduction in deaths. Um, but it also could be, of course, you know, looking at um, whether or not it stops transmission. And there are outcomes. And so we'd be looking at the efficacy in that point. Rolling forward, moving forward, we're going to go and re now release these vaccines into the community. We're going to start to capture data um, 
during uh, you know the normal routine surveillance practices we would do with the release of any kind of uh, drug or vaccine, and we will start to capture them as people get vaccinated. And so what we'll be looking at at a country level is the impact of these vaccines. And this is when this word effectiveness will kick in because it's in the kind of real-world setting. Um, it will be subject to um, a lot more different variables um, such as, you know, people's age, people's gender, people's underlying health condition. Uh, you know, and these are the kind of things that we'll need to look at so that we can really and truly say whether or not this vaccine is having the, the level of impact we need in all the different unique groups that we have in the population. Mm. So this means essentially when we, when we talk about these things and I, and I hear some of the difficulties here, but what we're talking, and this is one of the points of confusion I think for many people is even if we vaccinate everyone tomorrow, uh, we'll still have to, you know, put with that many of the things we currently have in place to prevent the transmission of this virus. So I think some, some may have the idea that the second they get the vaccine, they can just wander the streets or the supermarkets or whatever without fear nor favour that you know there, there are any risks to others at all. But the reality is right now, and you know and this is a changing beast month to month, and I get that, right now that's not the case. What the, the goal, and correct me, both of you correct me if I'm wrong here, the goal of the vaccination program is essentially to prevent people getting really sick and dying right now. That's, mm. that's the first goal. Um, later we'll be you know, going further with trying to prevent the disease altogether. But uh, am I right in saying that? Mm, yeah. That's correct. It definitely is. And we need to be setting our expectations uh, mm. correctly here because otherwise people will get disappointed. Um, they will talk to their friends and neighbours and say, oh, but I got the vaccine, but I still can't book that overseas holiday mm. that I'm really looking forward to. Or, you know, and, and I feel for some people, and this is this is where we need to have some conversations because for, for people out there in, in Australia, you know, who've got family and friends abroad who can't go and visit them, that is one of the hardest challenges. And so, you know, what we need to be conscious of is, is that it's about Australian, Australia getting our vaccine program going um, and, and monitoring what happens. It's also about allowing time for other countries to catch up and get their vaccine programs going and, and countries where, you know, the burden of, of COVID is vastly different to what we're seeing here in Australia. Um, and so we need time for all of that activities and so you know is is the use of of social distancing is the use of masks going away maybe not um and we will have to play it out and see what happens but you know we may see these kind of intermittent outbreaks continue to happen you know going forward um you know we're going back into winter we know that our behavior shift somewhat during winter of course we, we're more inside we tend mm. to come you know to come together in indoor you know activities as opposed to you know as all, all going down the beach at the moment you know and and mm. being socially distanced at the beach. Yeah. And so, you know, it will be all of these things that we need to be aware of. So, you know, mm. that is why you will still continue to see the government talk about the social distancing and public health measures when they roll out their vaccine messages. Yeah. Yeah. They'll go hand in hand. Yeah. I think as well, um, there's a couple of biological constraints there as well. Like you, like we were talking about before, your immunity takes time to develop. So it's not when you get a vaccine, you're not immediately protected. It takes a few weeks for you to even be protected from disease. 
Um, and the other factor is, you know, if we are in that fortunate place where these do, vaccines do end up having an impact on transmission, um, it, it's also dependent on the rollout and the time it takes to build up immunity across our community. How many people take up that vaccine? Because when we have a, a situation of high vaccine uptake, my protection and my health is dependent on your immunity and your health and those around me. So I think um, there's a lot of time constraints, both in the development of our own immunity and the development of the immunity within our community that impacts on on mm. um, those uh, the spread of the disease. And, and it's one tool in our toolkit. There's yeah. many other public health tools that we can rely on, and they're all part of the mix. They're all part of the equation. Kylie, one of the things that we should clear up too is, and this is a, a question I know I asked you probably you know several weeks ago now when we were writing our article, but if I get, and there, there are different vaccines with you know different, it seems, levels of effectiveness coming out. And we know about yeah. the Pfizer one sitting up there at 95, the AstraZeneca one's a bit lower, and there are other ones around with different values depending on, on how you look at things. All seem to be very effective you know, at, at preventing disease though. If if I if I look at those and I say okay I'm going to get the I'm going to get the Porsche you know now because I'm a healthcare reader, fantastic but 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 you say to me well I can't get that one I, I I'm going to get the the lower level one because that's the one available to me mm-hmm. is is it you know is it a possibility that you can later get a more effective vaccine as they come out I mean is that yeah. that pathway still there for you That's a really good question and I think I'm getting it more and more from the public mm. and as well I'm um it is the direction that the research is heading in we're trying to understand so what you're talking about um is what we call prime boosting when you give one vaccine and then another vaccine and it's very common for vaccine strategies to use what we call homologous prime boosting so giving the same vaccine one after another and that's what a lot of these SARS-CoV-2 vaccines that are coming out that's what they do um But the next step beyond that is to give two different vaccines, one after the other. And that's something called heterologous prime boosting. And we don't have a lot of that out there in in clinical vaccines. Uh, But we know from a lot of the experimental work that we do that heterologous prime boosting is actually really effective. Mm. Um, And it, it can be sometimes about finding the right combination of vaccines that work well together. It's a little bit like if you go to the gelato shop and you've got two scoops, do you get two of mango scoops or do you get mango and coconut? There's something special about mango and coconut. So we're trying to understand with these vaccines what those special combinations are. And um, I think that's going to be an area of active research going into the future. But I think biologically at this point in time, there's nothing that precludes people potentially in the future, depending on the advice that evolves. Mm. Um, getting a subsequent vaccine. Yeah, Kylie, we've only got a minute to go, but I just thought um, you might want to just comment on the vaccination program in in the US and in the UK. I mean, presumably we're going to be getting a huge amount of information from that, and that's in a different Mm. environment where there is an urgency to that rollout. Is is that going well at the moment, or is there mass shortages? I mean, just quickly, where are we at? Uh, there's um, there's always challenges. I think distribution highlights that there's there's always things that crop up that are unexpected. Um, you know, for example, with the supply of the uh, Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine to the EU, they have an order in uh, for that vaccine that was just announced yesterday. That mm. there's you know the because of um, production facility challenges that that. Um, product that supply will be reduced by about 60% to the wow. EU. 
So it's a big challenge. There's always things that crop up. But I think particularly, for example, with that vaccine, the fact that we can make it here in Australia at CSL, um, that gives us a level of independence, which is really valuable. So like we talked about in our article, that getting the vaccine to folks is a huge part yeah. of whether that vaccination campaign is actually effective. Yeah, look, I think it's a really good thing. And hopefully we can contribute to the rest of the world by you know, shipping some of our locally made um, vaccines or CSL overseas as well, especially to our, our local neighbours who are some are, you know, in nowhere near as good a situation as we are financially. So yeah. Kylie Quinn and Holly Seal, thanks so much for chatting to us about this. I'm sure this won't be our last conversation on um, vaccinations and what's coming up. This is a rapidly moving beast. We're seeing a lot of really poor behaviour in the media and it's good to clarify some of these issues um, more effectively. Th- thanks so much yeah. for being our guest today on Triple R. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Um, Folks, we're going to have to wind up now because the team from Eat It is ready to come online. Uh, It's good to see them in the studio next door. I'm glad to be back here on Triple R. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein The Go-Go today, and we will chat to you again in about a week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein The Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.